You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Today, again, very excited. Uh, Nuklu Palm from all the way from India. Uh, welcome, Nuklu. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Oh, this Thanks is, for the opportunity. Yes, we are thrilled to have you. We, uh, you know, look, looking at the news, you know, another Whitley Award winner for the work you're doing in India. I'm very excited to talk about this project that you're working on today. Um, but before we get we jump into it, I always like to ask my guests kind of their background on how they got involved in conservation, because we do have a lot of young listeners that are excited about conservation, and we like to show them different ways that people get involved. So if you could just kind of talk about where you grew up and how you got involved in in the field. <clears throat> okay, first, uh, sir, I want to thank uh the uh, the team for giving me this honor to come and then you know speak to you. Uh, you started by saying like experts like you and I'm not an expert. I'm just a learner, just a beginner. Uh, but it's the hard work that has you know brought me to this platform and many people praying for me and with their good gestures and visions, uh, wishes I'm able to interact with people around the world. And I would like to begin by saying thanks to the Amur Falcon. Uh, who connects landscapes and you know people, community experts and scientists, and because of this very interesting species, I've been given this platform to you know interact with you and also uh, get to know many people around the world. I grew up with my grandfather, uh, who who did not know how to read and write, but I looking at what he had imparted in me when I was very young, I realized that he was a conservationist because he and his you know and sisters knew what to take, what not to take. And they were uh, very uh, wise in managing the resources. But when I was young, he used to tell me that the humans have put so much pressure on the environment in the biodiversity. And if this trend continues, my generation would find it very hard to survive. And many years after his death, I realized that he was right. And um, I left for my college studies. And when I was in the college, I opted to take a course on environment ecology. And actually, which really broadened my ideas, my concept towards protection of the environment. Uh, but that was just what I studied in the college. I came back and I was teaching in a, a, a theological college. And I opted myself to teach a course on environment. And, you know, that again broadened my ideas. And so I slowly began a work on conservation, organizing seminars and workshop. But this was all more like a theory thing. So I thought maybe I should start something practically. So I went down to my village in 2006 and seven, and I started talking to my villagers about this climate change. When we talk about climate change and global warming, uh, out there, outside our jurisdiction, beyond the borders was a different phenomenon. But what happened was in our own context, we could feel the negative impact of the global warming and climate change for in the sense like the water bones were getting dried. There were many pests and insects attacking the ancestral crops. And then the quantum of production was going low. The water level in the rivers and streams were, you know, getting dried. And so this was felt in our own context. So people could 
you know, understand what I was trying to say. But initially, two, three years, it was not very easy uh, because uh, forest is our livelihood. Forest is an identity. And when you say, you know, this huge area of forest need to be set aside for conservation, where will our livelihood come was a big challenge, <clears throat> especially those people who were poaching and looking. It was not, uh, you know, a walk into a garden of rose, but gradually uh, with this negative impact on the environment and the production quality going down, people couldn't to understand that uh, what I said was true. And by 2008, we had come together to set aside a few huge uh, forest area. And uh, by, you know, when the community came together, we could see the regeneration of many hundreds of species in the biodiversity conservation. By 2009 and 2010, the Amur falcon also started coming. And I realized that, and this was one advantage I could tell my community, see, we set aside this forest and then it has become conducive even for the migrating Amur falcons to come and roost because by 2019, uh, you know, they started roosting. And gradually within two, three years, the population increased. And so people took more interest because now with the other regeneration of wild species, the Amur falcon had come. And so people took more interest. And <clears throat> gradually, uh, we declared a huge forest area as biodiversity conservation. And this became a success. And with this approach, uh, two, three years back, I wanted more community to join in this venture. And so I came up with this uh, uh, concept called Biodiversity Peace Corridor. And this is a different concept, and we will get to talk more on this. So this is what, you know, my background is, how I started the biodiversity conservation. It's, it's fascinating to, to hear you speak. It is, it is, you know, I know you say you're not an expert, but we also term you as a conservation hero because you were out on the ground in your region of the world making a massive difference that it's like a ripple effect. So what we learn, what you're doing there, hopefully we can outsource it somewhere else in the world and, and learn from, from, from your example. Like that is, that is fascinating. So you're saying before 2009, roughly the Amir Falcon was not going through your region. Really. It was just on its way migrating. Uh, well, the story of the Amur Falcon was there may maybe even during our ancestors time because <clears throat> uh, we had a name for this amuru falcon uh, called tuma loi which i will send you through email and explain to you what this uh, meaning was so our ancestors had already the name for this bird and so that that name itself guarantees that the birds were there but they were not in big number as we have today Maybe uh, they used to come, but then people shoot, or maybe they do not. They were not able to locate where it was. But when the biodiversity was set, they saw that the environment, the ecosystem, the entire landscape was quite conducive for them. For example, like uh, normally we have been studying how you know where does the Amur falcon roosting takes place, and we see that you know they 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 will select a spot where there is a clear uh, sun rays in the morning. And when the sun sets in the evening, there is once again that, you know, the rays are there and then they, they receive this, uh, you know, sunlight. And the other thing is, um, there is a, a very good uh, river uh, just next to the, the roosting site. And in the morning, when the sun rays rise, rises with the sun rays, they will come down and then they'll drink the water, they will bath 
and afternoon they play in the water. So these are good, you know, conducive areas. So what I've been telling is um, there was no such big congregation of the Amur Falcons, maybe some uh, 20, 30 years back. They come in small, con- uh, you know, volume. But with this, uh, with this conservation and uh, this conservation of the Amur Falcon initiatives, the population also had grown. And now we're all over this, uh, you know, hunting and then shooting of Amur, Amur Falcon was, you know, sensitized. The population also increased. And finally, today with this uh, proper ecosystem being set, they uh, saw that the environment was quite conducive for them. And in the, you know, from 2009 and then, the population had increased. So this is a small theory, but we do believe that our ancestors had talked to us about the Amur Falcon. Right, right, right. And so... To kind of explain your region of the world, so you're, you, this Indo-Burma hotspot, can you kind of explain what's going on there? And in, in, I hope I'm saying this right. Nagaland, right? Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it's Nagaland. Yeah. Yes. So what is happening is, uh, uh, you see, development, setting up of industries and factories, you know, big commercial development, you know, a big road and things happening uh, is also good. But at the same time, you see, when this kind of a development comes, uh, sometimes it destroys the natural, you know, habitat uh, species, and also it distracts, uh, you know, uh, human habitation and also for the wild species. So when we talk about this hotspot, all the villages, all the communities have huge forest areas. And uh, we are talking about the whole of Nagaland, but we are also looking at the Indo-Myanmar border. And these areas are not yet explored. They are there as natural forests. They are clear, natural virgin forests. And, you know, uh, people have not gone there. And so, uh, you know, it is actually equally contributing towards the, you know, uh, uh, what, what you call it, the carbon sequestration uh, towards the global family. And so that's how we look at, and there are many, hundreds and hundreds of species, both floral and faunal species, and uh, massive developmental activities has not taken place. Uh, Railways have not been connected. Uh, In most of these areas, you know, uh, big roads are not connected. And so it is still, you know, a a virgin natural forest, and it is not polluted. And there are floral and faunal species present. And so that's how we look at the, uh, you know, hotspot. Naturally, when developmental activities takes place, if there is no proper management, this uh, you know uh, natural uh, biodiversity is going to be extinct and diminished. Right, right, right. And um, so, what are some of the other, I guess, major species that inhabit uh, these forests? Well, um, there are tigers, there are hornbills, uh, pangolin, what you call the Chinese pangolin, which is an endangered species, and uh, uh, I'm not from that background, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. hundreds of, of species, hundreds <laughs> of species, you know, yeah. uh, uh, this uh, great Indian leopard, it has been spotted even in our areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point of time, you know, there were monkeys. When I say monkeys, what you see in India is different, but we are talking about the different monkeys. And then we have been able to spot some of them, even very uh, recently, two weeks back uh, in my own village, you know, a big, huge two monkeys came inside. So that regeneration and uh, hundreds of, you know, butterflies and moths and uh, other mammal species and also in the, you know, aquatic uh, species are also being regenerated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's one of the richest 
biomes on earth, you know, uh, that part of, of the world is just so many species and, you know, hornbill, we just covered the great hornbill from India. So, you know, that, I, I love hearing about that. Yeah. They're, they're amazing birds. So I, I guess this is a, a question, you know, for the, for the present and how's the region faring during this pandemic the past year? Because we're hearing reports from people out in the field that, I mean, it's just, you know, obviously the whole entire planet has been affected. Everybody's been affected. Uh, how, how are the, the locals there doing and, and uh, the region there? Yeah. Well, um, we, I also have personally received so much of uh, <clears throat> concerns from, uh, from friends around the globe. And thank you to all of them. Uh, well, India is in a very uh, uh, difficult situation. Uh, coming back, our state of Nagaland is also not that very serious compared to other states of India, but mainly in you know two, three major downs, the cases has been increasing every uh, every almost like every day. There are hundreds cases increasing, but thank God there are not much many deaths taking place. But that is mainly in the metropolis, cities, and towns. We live in a very interior setting where, you know, our ecosystem is very close to us. Uh, forest is, you know, the natural forest around us. So in the villages, uh, in the interior settings with the communities, uh, we have not found any single cases. And we have disciplined ourselves that we should not go to the town. We should not mix up so much with people coming from outside. And there is a very uh, clear... SOB is being maintained. And so people are very disciplined. And so far in the interior villages, in the interior setting, uh, there is not much cases, except in few towns, the cases has been increasing, but then uh, thank God uh, there is no, uh, no much death uh, taking place. Good, good, good. Yeah. It's just, it's just been a horrific year for everybody. And, and just, you know, especially with conservation has taken a ma massive hit, you know, ecotourism and, and, and all these things. So, um, you know, hopefully that, that, that doesn't affect your work. I have a question before I, cause I really want to jump maybe a little bit more into the Amir Falcon so somewhat. How did you get buy-in from the locals? When, when I was listening to you open up and talk about convincing them to protect this forest that they depend on for their livelihoods, how did you convince them to say, okay, we need to protect this and we, and, and we need to rehabilitate it so the animals do come back? I think the foundation that laid for me was the, uh, I worked in the church uh, before. Mm -hmm. And so I had this platform of the church and you see everywhere, every Sunday, every weekend, I travel to different churches. And I took that platform to sensitize the people. And I said, uh, what was happening globally was, you know, uh, every Sunday I tried to explain to them and how this is going to affect in the future. That was one thing. But the other very important component was the, the climate change that was felt in our own context. Like I said in the beginning, you know, uh, the, the bones in the villages were getting dry. The river system was going down and also the new pest that was attacking their crops. And what happened was this, uh, this things taking place uh, in our own context was felt by the people and then uh, it was affecting their livelihood system. And they realized that with this trend, unless there is an alternative livelihood being introduced, uh, unless there is an ecosystem, proper ecosystem and also ecotourism being set, 
sustainability is a huge challenge. That was one thing. And so uh, we, I and our team are not that expert. We are also used to managing available resources. Uh, some of our members are good at uh, human resource development. We try to identify whatever resources are there. We try to extract, but certain management uh, uh, policy is being applied. And then we try to give back. For example, one example is like ginger plantation. Uh, ginger has a very good market uh, nationally, internationally. And so uh, we invite the communities for you know, such uh, uh, activity. And so these are some of the uh, activities that we introduce to them. But the most important thing was, <clears throat> you see, it was not the entire village, like 200, 300 uh, people going and doing the hunting. Mm -hmm. It will be just few of them, maybe like five of them, 10 of them in one community. So we came up with a new concept called shooting with guns to shooting with cameras and binoculars. Mm -hmm. We started using that concept. So earlier these hunters would go and then uh, shoot with their guns but now they will shoot with cameras and binoculars. So in this concept, what we introduced was whoever identifies a new species will be rewarded with a small cash. That's For example, like amazing. Yeah. If, they, if they're able to capture a bird, a big bird, we give them around 200 rubies. Yeah. If they capture around a four-legged you know, wild uh, uh, animal, we give them around 400 you know, rupees. And then we give them a camera, we give them a binocular. We also give them a camera trap. So they will go and then set up camera traps and whatever you know, is identified, we rewarded them with small cash. Mm -hmm. So I think this mechanism uh, convincingly works. So now what is happening is earlier they shoot and that animal is gone. Yeah. Now what will happen is, you know, every time they identify the species, they will get on getting the money. Yeah. And so these are some of the mechanisms that we uh, introduced. And then now it was actually the hunters who take us to the jungle, to the forest, because they know the path and they will set the camera and they will tell us that, you know, in this area, there is a, you know, a, a jungle fowl. In this area, you will be able to see parking there. So these are some of the mechanisms that help us to convince the hunters uh, who actually became our volunteers. Mm -hmm. I use the word ambassadors. So they actually, those hunters became our ambassadors. The other thing was we were able to introduce to them small, you know, livelihood income generating activities. But most importantly, we were able to uh, make use of the platform to sensitize the people by saying, you know, climate change, global warming is becoming a huge threat for us. And people, you know, really understood what we tried to, you know, help them understand. Yeah, I know. I mean, when it's affecting your lives, I mean, directly, it, it affects all of us. It's just, you know, yes. especially out there where in some parts of the world, it's it's really uh, intensified. And I, and I believe the, the Himalayan region is where climate change is being felt more than a lot of others. So I, I guess tying the Amir Falcon into the biodiversity peace corridor that really uh, the Whitley uh, Fund for Nature, you won the award for. So if you can kind of explain what that is, and then we can kind of talk about how the Amir Falcon fits into that. Okay. Uh, you see, like I said in the beginning, when the Amur Falcon started coming in 2009-10, it was maybe around 40,000, uh, 50,000. And when this came, you know, in other places also, people were shooting randomly. Uh, but I... I told my community members that these are our guests and they will bring more guests. 
these birds are going to connect us with scientists and experts. This bird is going to connect us with people around the globe. And they will bring many people to see what we are doing. And so maybe uh, they really understood what I was trying to say. And so uh, exactly what I told them happened. By 2010-11, as the population was increasing, uh, you might have heard about this Wildlife Institute in India, in, a, uh, in Dehradun. This is where uh, uh, people go for uh, you know, uh, uh, wildlife studies. And so this Wildlife Institute heard about what we were doing in our own context. In fact, you see, our story was not getting beyond. Uh, Chris, uh, there is a storm here, so you may not be able to hear properly, so I'll have to uh, increase my volume. Uh, okay, let me come yeah, in yeah. here. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the Wildlife Institute took a keen interest about what we were doing. So in 2014, some of the research scholars and the senior scientists came and visited. And uh, that's how our stories were not going beyond our borders, but they started writing about what we were doing. And uh, local newspapers started coming and capturing. So as this uh, momentum was going, uh, people said, you know, I think we should continue to preserve this. And that's how the population increased. So what is happening is, you see, like, um, when we conserve, in other locations, people might be shooting that we are not very much aware. But in our own context, our community members have completely stopped shooting. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, during this Amur Falcon season in the month of October and November, we send our student leaders, volunteers, to patrol around the conservation area so that people from outside communities are not penetrating inside our conservation area. Mm -hmm. So that actually uh, logically worked. And with that, the increase of population was uh, tenfold, like, mm -hmm. you know, 1 million, 1.2 million. And by 2000, uh, 2016, 17, the population had increased to 1.5 million. Okay. And so very interestingly, the Wildlife Institute and the government of India decided to satellite tag the Amur Falcon. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the success of what we did. And so in 2016, uh, two Amur Falcons were satellite tagged with a small transmitter. And uh, very unfortunately, one uh, we, we lost one right after they went down to South Africa. You might have heard about it. And that name was Pom. The name was given after our community name Pom. Mm -hmm. But it will be lost the bird. But Longling, is the name of our district headquarters. Mm -hmm. And that longing actually created history and it created record. And I think that's the, according to the scientific data, that was the longest bird surviving. It survived for four years. Wow. And it created data for four years. And in fact, really interestingly, on three counts, three occasions, we lost her also. But our community, you know, came together. We prayed for this Amur Falcon longling. And after seven days, it started sig signaling again. You know, so uh, we call it the um, conservation ambassador. You know, yeah, we yeah, gave yeah. Longling a name, an ambassador, you know, biodiversity conservation ambassador and a miracle bird. These were some of the titles being, you know, entitled to her. And because of this satellite tag bird, uh, we were able to locate the status of the millions of Amur falcons, you know, uh, in this 22,000 uh, kilometer stretch route. And that's how the story was getting better. And in fact, very uh, we are very grateful to the Wildlife Institute that they were able to you know, uh, document what we were doing and this story went beyond. And that's how uh, 
we call this a focal species and Amur falcon connected us with, it's a small community. People have not heard about us, but because of this focal species, Amur falcon, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the global family came to know about my humble village, about what little work that we did, uh, what we do. And that's how, uh, thank you, I'm able to sit in front of you yeah. and also being able to connect with uh, uh, Mojo Din. No, it's, it's so this, this falcon, you know, for the listeners, uh, it, it migrates from what China up in China, Siberia, all the way down to Africa. And so it, it it's roosting in, in Nagaland for a couple months, it, but it, here's the thing. Nuclear, your story is so inspirational. It is when, when I heard it, you know, and to be honest with you, I, 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 we're, we're going to want to interview all the, the award winners, but you were the one I was like, I want to speak to him. I, I've got to speak to this person because it is people like you that are, that are making the difference in the world. It's just, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. So, so thank you for what you do uh, because you inspire not only me, but the thousands of people around millions of people around the world. So can you explain specifically what the biodiversity peace corridor is? Yeah. Watching the video, you know, setting up all these sites, I guess, in, in your region of the world. Okay. Yes. So, uh, like I said in the beginning earlier, I <clears throat> my focus was on biodiversity, uh, community biodiversity conservation. But when this Amur Falcon started coming, like I said, it was connecting us with the other people around the world. And so this, you know, this thought struck me. You see, Today, we have conflict around the world. There are conflict between two nations. Uh, a and B, is, there is a conflict. <clears throat> but there are third parties and fourth parties who comes in between. And they are, you know, you know, the pressure has been reduced and the tension has been, you know, sustained. And uh, through the intervention of the third party and the fourth party, uh, the conflict is also reduced. Now, what I've been studying in the, in the last 15, 10, 15 years is the threat against humanity is so severe and the threat is our handmade. We ourselves have created and our enemy is, is almost like the environment which has come so heavily upon us. Uh, like I said in the beginning, <clears throat> the global warming and the climate change in other countries, in the Western countries, in Europe, in other South Asian countries, Maybe a little different, but in our own context, in our own local context, the water bones, like I said, are getting dried. You know, this we are experiencing. Mm -hmm. So what we, what I decided to do was, <clears throat> and in the biodiversity peace corridor, what I tried to do is, we wanted to create, we wanted to bring hundreds of communities all around this, you know, landscape. It is not just my small village and two, three villages. Immediately with the support of the Whitley Fund for Nature, we will bring 16 communities. But this is just a beginning. We already have some 20, 30 villages who are willing to join under this. So when this, you know, we are saying 20, 30, 50 communities join together, this, this communities are going to raise conservation managed by indigenous communities. So the threat that comes against us will be, you know, the, the pressure, the threat will not be as severe as it is, but maybe it will be a little reduced when hundreds of communities come together with a, to join in this mission of setting aside their forests as a conservation. 
So what we are doing, trying to do is in the biodiversity peace corridor, we will create communities to come together. The conflict between community to community will be solved. But at the same time, we will create a space for the wild species to live together with us. We will create a space for them so that we sustain each other. And therefore, in the corridor, the wild species will have free access of movement, you know, without being, you know, a uh, threat. They can travel to different communities. And at the same time, we will also bring the communities from other areas to our areas. We can visit the other, you know, areas. So it is a joint venture. It is a mission. And that, that whole landscape is going to be a corridor where humanity can have free access, wild species will have free access, but at the same time, the threat against the humanity of the climate change, global warming will be reduced. So that's the whole concept of the biodiversity peace corridor. It's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. This is what we need to be doing around the world, you know, everywhere <laughs> here in New Zealand, you know, back in my home country, the United States, it's, it's everywhere this this needs to be implemented it is it's amazing what you're doing so how long do you think it's going to take to get all this set up and then what's what's next after that so once you get these villages how do you want to you said expand that and um you know grow it just give me one second i want to yes i i heard the question yeah <clears throat> okay uh, we are having a storm here, so yeah. uh, it's summer for us. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. You might have heard about the cyclonic storm that is taking place in other mainline India, especially Mumbai. Yeah. Uh, thanks to the community for setting aside huge forest area. Yes. Uh, we are protected from the cyclone. Yes, and, you yes, know, yes. That's the importance. So yes. that is what exactly I was trying to say in the biodiversity peace corridor. The, you know, the threat against us, the environment, the nature has become so severe. And but when we have huge forest areas, we are protected from this threat. And this is what I'm experiencing even now. When in mainline other parts of the country there is a cyclonic storm, houses are, are, are not protected. You see, but we are protected because we have huge forest cover. Okay, coming back to uh, <clears throat> what you said, immediately with the support of the Whitley Fund for Nature, we are going to work with 16 communities, and this is built. This is based on the success story that I did in my village of Yangyimchen, Alayong and Sanglu, three communities during the last 12 years. And we have had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, mechanism being designed, uh, des uh, designed. We have also land management policies and also, you know, uh, what to take, what not to take. This uh, management policies has been adopted and this mechanism is going to be applied in the you know 16 new uh, communities where with the support of the Whitley Fund for Nature, we are going to take up this. But let me also tell you that we have not been supported. You know, like mm -hmm. I said in the beginning, our story was not written. It was not getting beyond the borders, except from 2016 and 17, only after Wildlife Institute came and satellite taking exercises was you know undertaken. Our stories got you know written and heard, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. thankfully. Uh, your you know team, the Liquid team, and Whitley Fund for Nature have recognized us, and I'm sure many will get to know about our humble story. Mm -hmm. So, uh, with this support, for one year we are going to work with the 16 communities. Uh, it will just be a replication of the success stories that we have had in my community. Well, depending on the topography and the landscape, 
there will be little changes and with the available resources uh, we will work with them but if we have more support you know in another 5 years in another you know 10 years let me be very honest there are some 30 to 50 communities who had actually invited me to come and then support them mm-hmm. in the sense of the forest is ready the forest is there but then they have not been able to manage manage properly mm-hmm. and so i think with more support we are going to go and then expand our success story even in some 50 to you know uh, if not more villages and i'm sure like you said in the beginning it is going to become a hotspot where there will be a lot of species and also we'll create more amur falcon roosting sites Right, right. And I just, you know, I, I can imagine as, as a researcher myself, wanting to go in and study the rehabilitation of the land and how yes. it comes back and how the locals are maintaining it. Because that's, that's the stories we're hearing, you know, from Africa, South America, you know, to your region of the world up in Nepal, too, where the locals are, are caretaking of the environment. That's, that's where we need to be. That's who we need to empower. Yeah, Chris, let, let me add one more. You see, in Nagaland, we have a traditional education center, and that's called Murung. Maybe I'll write to you about all this. Yeah, yes, yes. And this Murung is a center where decision was, you know, decision making was done. Here, the elders will come and decide what to be done and what not to be done. So, actually, I adopted that Murung center as a platform to disseminate my own concept. I try to bring in the elders. I try to bring in young people and talk to them about this. And so uh, this Murung is going to be our center whenever I travel to this, you know, uh, with this concept of biodiversity conservation, we're going to use this platform, Murung concept, and disseminate the idea. And so this is going to be very helpful for us in, you know, imparting and also in expanding our policy of this biodiversity peace corridor. How busy are you doing all of this? This is amazing work. <laughs> Do you have any other projects you're working on? I mean, that just, I imagine that just takes up all of your time. Well, mm, I'm not busy, but I'm a very hardworking man. I learned from my grandfather. My father was a very hardworking uh, person. My mother was, and I have inherited that, you know, the value of working hard. And I also depend much on, you know, managing, you know, the available resources. But thank God I have a very good team now. Uh, there, you know, some of them are uh, masters in, you know, zoology and uh, botany. And some of them are anthropologists. And uh, they have good background in uh, English studies. So some of them help me in writing. So I have a good team. And so uh, they will help me. Uh, we are looking at the biodiversity conservation as one of our primary project. Mm-hmm. And we will try to expand that to uh, you know, many communities. We also have a small health program, which uh, maybe is a different subject now. But uh, I started this in 2011. Mm-hmm. See, my village did not have a health program. And so people had to go to big towns and then they will have to sell off their you know, land just to take their patient to the uh, you know, town. So... I started a small uh, health uh, community health uh, center in my village. And today it turned out to be a very big center. And so we have a health program. We have community health officer. We have nurses and we have also uh, other stuff. We also focus on uh, education, <clears throat> uh, skill development and holistic uh, 
transformation in the lives of children. And so then we also have a small livelihood program wherever community is willing to, you know, come up with conservation. We work with them for small livelihood programs. So in a small way, in our own capacity, we are working. And so we are looking at four uh, projects now, uh, conservation, health program, livelihood, and education program. These are four components that we are taking up. But like I said, uh, we work hard and then we have a very strong team, uh, energetic team, and they're all helping me. So I'm very confident that uh, with all your support, Chris, yeah. uh, with all your support, with more experts coming and you know supporting us, and with my strong team, I, I believe we will be able to venture out in this mission no it's yeah it's 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 fascinating and, it, and it's inspiring i mean that that's the only word that keeps coming to my head is just the work you're doing is just so inspiring and you know for our young listeners it, it's this is these are the stories you need to listen listen to and absorb and then make a difference in your own part of the world so is there anywhere where our listeners can learn more about your projects you know i, I definitely will put the links in in our show notes as far as you know, the the Whitley Fund for Nature that they've provided, but are there other areas where people can learn more? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> let me use this analogy. I live with three generations. When I was young, I lived with my grandfather and his elders. I lived with them. And they had imparted to me what was happening in their generation. Now, I am in my mid-40s and I live with my generation, but I also live with the younger generation, like four years, five years, and I learn from these three generations. My uh, message to the listeners is whoever listens, uh, we have so much confined, our attachment is so much with technology, with social media, and so we have no time to listen. Mm -hmm. um, I think we need to listen to the elders. We need to also understand what is happening in our global family. For example, the pandemic. You know, had we been very serious about, you know, uh, environment and conservation and global farming, if we had been so aware in the last 10 years, you know, all this pandemic would have been a little restricted. It might have come, but like I said in the beginning, not serious as we, you know, are experiencing today. And so my message is, let us go back to our own community. Let us try to be so kind to the environment. And especially those people who are into hunting as, you know, they take hunting as their sports. Let us be a little kind to the, you know, wild animal. Let us be a little kind to the environment. And um, to the, you know, policymakers and experts, I think we need to be a little serious about the carbon sequestration. I think community members who are contributing, setting aside their huge forest areas which, is, which would have been their livelihood income generating you know, spot had been surrendered as a conservation, which is equally a contribution to the global family. And I think uh, starting with UN and other many countries, I think we should adopt this strongly, uh, you know, implement and execute the carbon sequestration policy. And I think uh, my message to young people is let us start listening to elders who yes. have you know, lived for many generations. And I think that is the biggest message and lesson we can learn, which we cannot learn in universities, but they are our universities. So, you know what, if you are able to listen something to me, this is what I learned from my elders. Yeah. Yeah. And you learn a lot from nature, right? Like just, you know, the, yes. the Amir Falcon, yes. it just, 
Uh, an amazing species that we're definitely going to cover. It's so. Is there? I asked this. Any website, social media, anywhere where our listeners can uh, follow this work? Yes. Uh, uh, we have a website. We have a, a Instagram. We have a Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the world does, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, our, you know, our access to social media was not that, mm-hmm. except that, you know, newspapers started writing, and especially like this coverage, uh, live talking with you, and being, being broadcast in television has not really taken place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you are really interested, if you type www. you know, Nuklu Poem or My Society, Lamsa uh, Chenlo, you will get to learn about, you know, what uh, we have been doing in the last 10, 12 years. Right. And I'll definitely provide those links to the listeners so that so they can start following you and and listening to the story. And then any way they can help. Is there any way, you know, what they can do? You know, Chris, uh, one of the reasons I have not been so much into social media is going back to what you just asked. Yeah. Uh, You seem to be very busy. And I have disciplined myself to be, you know, what how much of time should I be with the social media? Not much. And we work hard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So uh, only my team members. After the Whitley Fund for Nature, uh, you know, came into you know recognition. Mm-hmm. Then only uh, I started using Instagram. Yeah. Otherwise, before that, I just use uh, just simple WhatsApp. Yeah. So no, even I, now we are so disciplined. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Like you know, I'm going on hikes here in New Zealand and posting it. And it takes so much time, and it's just like, but you know, people. That's how that's how we communicate these days. Who knows where we'll be in ten years? But the the fact that. I can do a, a zoom interview with you is, is just, I would have never in my life as a young, young boy thought I would be doing it one day. So I, I just have to say for, on behalf of our listeners and my podcasting partner, Angie, thank you for what you do because, you know, I know that the coverage helps you, but for us, it's inspiring. And these stories are inspiring. It gives us hope. Because out there in nature, out there in the news, there isn't a lot of hope. But hearing your story, I, I'm not kidding you. To be 100% honest, I I have a lot of hope for the future, the future of of Nagaland and India and other countries around the world. Because people like yourself who take it upon themselves to to make change, they're standing up, they're being heard, they're being recognized. So thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for <clears throat> giving us this platform. And after the Whitley Fund for Nature Award was declared, I discussed with my team members, am I really worth getting this award? And the answer was what I just gave. We have really worked hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see, my, my ambition initially when I was young was to become a doctor. And I wanted to, you know, join the you know, civil service. But you know, I opted to work in the church. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, God gave me this platform, you know, to be connected with many, many people with larger understanding and also to contribute little in my own capacity to the global family. And um, I would like to thank you and your team for giving us this platform. My last uh, word is if the COVID, you know, this uh, pandemic subsides, uh, please do come to our, you know, small, humble community. At witness, uh, like we are talking today, but it's just online. But uh, please come and look for yourself what, you know, this massive 
congregation of the Amur falcons and the other species are. And when you come, I'm sure you will have a lot of advices to give us and uh, maybe many things to learn from us also. And thank you to all your listeners. Uh, God bless you. And thank you so much for this platform. And I would also like to thank my team members who have been very supportive and you know who have been working with me. Definitely. I, yeah, it is on my list for sure. Is, 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 is to, to shake your hand and say thank you personally <laughs> would be a dream. And the COVID pandemic will subside. It will. It's just it's just yes. taking a little bit longer than we wished. But, you know, yes. blessings yes. to you. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for spending uh, almost an hour with me, you know, talking about what you're what you're up to. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So fascinating. And thank you for this opportunity. God bless you. We'll pray for you. You too. Thank you.